Thank you, guys. Good job, guys, on those songs. Turn to uh, turn to the end. We're going to say that one more time after today. Okay, next week. Revelation chapter twenty-two. Follow along with me as I start reading in verse 6. Revelation 22, 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take from the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this good final word that comes in this amazing section of Scripture. Lord, teach us today through this word. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew in us a right spirit. Help us to hunger and thirst after you, Lord Jesus. And thank you that you promised to quench it. You promised to fill us. You alone satisfy. Lord, help us, I pray, to worship you today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We throw that word around a lot, don't we? That word, worship. You've heard it read... And we've sung of it today several times. And as Danny and Darlene were sharing about these 
angels, these heavenly messengers that we see so often in Scripture, and we see more of them in the book of Revelation than we do in any other book. And we, we've seen this picture of these angels coming and bringing this message, but as, as they read this morning, there's this message of the angels coming there, especially to those shepherds, and proclaiming to them this news. And then all of a sudden, worship broke out in the heavens. There was with the multitude, there was with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, worshiping, praising God, and saying, glory to God in the highest. So these angels are there worshiping God and praising God and singing Him. The first time that the word worship... And, uh, Let's take just a second and understand what this word means, because that's where I'm uh, clearly where I'm going today as we kind of close out this this last chapter in the book of Revelation. The word it's easier for me to show you. The word worship means to literally kneel before someone and kiss the hand. We see it lots of times in Eastern religions, because worship is a posture. Worship is kneeling before someone, we understand God alone. And literally what we see in the book of Revelation is prostrating yourself. So you understand that? I mean, it's putting your head down. That's, that's what worship is. It's a posture of the heart, but a posture physically too, I might add. One that we often miss in our culture, and in our understanding. We worship God in our barca lounger, or in our recliner, or on our couch. And often our heart is as casual as our backside. But that's not the picture we see in, in, in Scripture. And so worship is first seen, as Danny and Darlene were referring to a minute ago, or excuse me, JT was in that particular sense, the first time you see this word proskuneo, it comes from the word where we just prostrate ourselves, lay out before someone. The first time you see that word is in Matthew 2.2, 2, where the wise men said, we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. And it says later on that they presented their gifts and they worshiped him. Interestingly enough, the next time you see that, path, that word is in Matthew 4. And this time the word comes from the lips of Satan. All this I will give you, he says to Jesus as he's tempting him in the wilderness, if you will fall before me and worship me. And there, set before us, is the whole picture, I think, of what we see in Revelation. What we see before us is, is a question of worship. Who is worthy and who is going to cause us to fall to our knees? Will it be the world? What we'll see later on in Revelation is the, is the whore of Babylon and the beast and the dragon and the false prophet. Will we fall before them and worship them because they, like the father of lies, Satan says, all this I will give you if you will kneel before me. Or will we follow the pattern of Jesus where he says, be gone, Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord and serve Him alone. So there, there in the early part of Matthew, we see, we see this 
word, we see this concept. It's really not until Revelation chapter 4, it's alluded to one other time in the, in the, in the, wor- in the letters to the churches, but the, the real place where we see the word worship first time is in Matthew, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 4. I'll refer to that in just a minute. But it's alluded to all the way through the letters to the seven churches. Do you remember that? Let me just, let's just recap this. All of this is just leading up to this life. In Ephesus, the church was tempted by this group called the Nicolaitans, who were tempting them to worship idols, who were tempting them to culturally worship instead of scripturally worship. The church that we see next, the church in Smyrna, is commended because they've been faithful in the face of the, the, the tabernacle, if you will, or the Jews who really aren't Jews because they've added to God's Word, and they've been faithful to stand up against that. The third church that we see there is Pergamum, and they are being led by those, or at least being influenced by those, in the ways of Balaam. And Balaam in the Old Testament led the Israelites to compromise. Worship God and worship idols. The fourth example that we see in the letters is Thyatira, who tolerated this false prophetess named Jezebel. Of course, Jezebel is infamous for leading Israel to worship idols, to bow before the the gods of Baal. The next church that we see in Revelation is the church in Sardis. And the problem with Sardis was they were asleep. And they really weren't aware of the dangers that were creeping into them. The, the, the subtle influence of idolatry that permeated their culture is permeating ours. Philadelphia. They, they, they kept the word, but in their case, they were being pressured to deny his name. And they were, they were holding up in the face of that. And then the last one is Laodicea. And the problem with Laodicea is we remember that they were lukewarm. They were half-hearted in their worship. They were tolerating that which they shouldn't tolerate and not emphasizing that which they should. So worship is not specifically mentioned in those letters to the churches, but it's running throughout. That's the whole point there. Don't compromise with the world. Worship God alone. Serve Him alone. Don't listen to the lies of the culture that I will give you all this if you will kneel before me. And so then as we get into the book of Revelation itself, this word of of prostrating oneself, bowing before the Lord. Turn back to Revelation chapter 4. We're we're taken into the throne room of God here in Revelation chapter 4. And, and just, just listen to the description that we have that comes to us there. I'll start in, uh, let's see, I'll go in verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third creature like the, with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And look at verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six eyes, full of eyes all around and within, day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him 
who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. In chapter 5, that same worship is going on, but guess what? This time it's directed to the Lamb, who is sharing the throne there with the Father. And they sing the same song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, it tells us there. And they worship Him. Look at verse 14. And the four living creatures say, Amen. And the elders fall down and worship. There's a lot of getting up and down in heaven. There's a lot of it going on here. They fall down and worship. In chapter 7, this beautiful scene is joined by people from every tribe and tongue and nation, which Jason read to you a few minutes ago. They fell on their faces and they worshipped God, it says in verse 11, praising Him, singing and saying His attributes. It's a beautiful picture there in chapter 7. In chapter 9, it changes. It changes. Oh, there's still the kneeling. There's still falling prostrate before someone. But in chapter 9, what we see is that the hard, impenitent, unrepentant heart of those who worship the beast, of those who follow the dragon, it says in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols and gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. They did not repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So worship, that's a center of revelation. Will you worship Him who is seated on the throne or Him who lies and says, all of this I'll give you if you'll just kneel? And follow me. And here this hardened, idol-worshiping heart will not repent, even in the face of all of these plagues, in the face of all of this judgment. And in chapter 11, for the first time, we see rising up out of the bottomless pit, the one behind it all. Satan came face to face with Jesus in the temptations. Here he's more subtle starting out. And this beast that rises up from the bottomless pit we see here in chapter 11, who makes war against the followers of the Lamb, who comes against them and kills them. And we see him more and more, but listen, take heart. Even in chapter 11, where the beast rises up out of the bottomless pit, that chapter is bookend by worship. Proper worship. Look at the beginning of chapter 11. Here's this, here's this, this picture of worship that's going on there in that heavenly throne. And in 11.1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I said, and, and was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. There is a place of worship. There is a center of worship in chapter 11. And at the end of chapter 11, it all seems to culminate, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. And here the elders go down again. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that in the book of Revelation, as in all of Scripture, as in all of reality, which Scripture tells us, the worship of God, the sovereign control of God, the dominion of God is not diminished when those beasts rise up out of the bottomless pit. It doesn't change that. So in chapter 11, this worship bookends the rising of the beast. In chapter 13, 
Four times we see worship referred to. And every time you see that word proskuneo, it is toward the dragon, it's toward the beast, it's toward the false prophet. It's those who are selling out and following the lies of the enemy. All except in verse 18. Those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. They don't. They stay true. In chapter 14, I think you find the central theme of the whole book of Revelation in many ways. It says in verse 7, This beautiful fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This central theme, worship God the Creator, worship God the Redeemer. And in chapter 14, God's eternal wrath on those who choose not to, well, we worship Him for that too. We worship Him because His wrath is being poured out. We worship Him because He is showing Himself to be holy and true. In chapter 15, we're taken back to the book of Exodus where Moses sang this song of worship and praise because God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And he did it there at the Red Sea. And in chapter 15, there's this song of praise and worship because of what God has done. So it goes on. Chapter 17 through 19, we see the beast and the dragon and the false prophet ultimately judged, thrown into the lake of fire. And then as we've worked our way up to the end of this book, up to the end of the story, fast forward over to chapter 22. And here we see ourselves in the text for today. But here's what I want you to see. Here's how I want to kind of draw this thing to an end, okay? How we want to see, I really believe, is just the culmination of this. It says in verse 22, I mean in chapter 22, this this picture, and I didn't read this, but listen. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Remember the new heavens and the new earth? The Scripture's coming full circle. That what was broken in Genesis is remade in Revelation. What was undone there by sin is remade even better in, in, in Revelation. So there coming through the middle of the street is this river of life. And there it says is this tree, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. The curse is reversed that we saw in Genesis. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And look at that next sentence. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. We will be identified with Him. We will be enraptured by Him. We'll be just enthralled by Him. I love what... Sam Storm says, There will never come a time in heaven when we will know all that we can know or see or feel or experience in joy. We will never plumb the depths of gratification in God or reach its end. He says, Our satisfaction and delight and joy in Him are subject to incessant increase. When it comes to heavenly euphoria, words such as termination and cessation and expiration and finality are utterly inappropriate and inapplicable. We'll never tire. We'll never get enough. We'll never plumb the depths of who God is. We will see His face and worship Him. But 
here's what just seems to it just it's amazing to me to see how the Holy Spirit led John to write what he wrote, especially here in this last chapter. It's I, I just it's amazing to me. It says these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord God just confirms to John the source of the message. Jesus himself makes a promise of blessing to those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. And John falls to his knees and worships the messenger. The angel. You heard Danny and Darlene. John's not alone in this craziness. And he's a super saint. He's a hero of the faith, or should be. And I love the fact that the Bible is so honest that we must learn from those who we would want to follow as spiritual examples. Learn from their faithfulness and also learn from their mistakes. And John is swept up in the euphoria. He's swept up in the majesty of this messenger Thank you, Danny, for reminding us. These angels are not cute little babies with wings. They take people's breath away. People fall on the ground, some in fear, and some, even John, in worship. And this is the second time John's done this. I like the fact that he seems to be a slow learner in this area. Because guess what? This room is filled with slow learners when it comes to idolatry and worship. And I'm the chief among you. Don't do that, John. I'm just a servant with you. What kind of servants are these? Well, these are servants who are, are, are the prophets who speak God's Word. It's those who keep the words of the book. It's those who worship and it's the same word, almost word for word, as John was corrected or rebuked, if you will, earlier when he fell down before the messenger in chapter 19. Don't do that, John. You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Then look at the end. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in the book. What is that? We're, it's just amazing that we find those words, that, and it is a reference. And as I was studying this, and just over the last couple of weeks, it's really been meditating on worship and thinking about that. Greg Beal, who's one of the commentators I've been using, gave me an insight into this that I think is astounding. And to me, brings it all together. This is, this is what kind of brought me to this place. What does he mean about adding and taking away from God's Word? What does he mean about God taking away our share in the tree of life? Or God pouring out, if you will, the plagues described in this book? What is he doing there? Where does that come from? It comes from the people of God in the Old Testament who were about to enter into a promised land with water flowing and milk and honey. They were flowing into this land that had been promised to them. And God gave them direction. God gave them instruction. He said, if you're going to go in and, and, and partake in this land that I'm about to give you, you need to 
understand what it means to worship, what it means to walk with me. Turn over to Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Here's what, here's what Beale says. To add to or take away from the words of God's revelation, according to Deuteronomy, means to accept the false teaching, listen to this, that idolatry is compatible with worship of the one true God. To take away from God's word or to add to God's word is to accept the lie that you can do that, that you can worship God and worship the world or worship the world's ways or worship the world's idols at the same time. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses gives this command to the people in chapter chapter 4, verse 1, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live... And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you or take away from it, that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Pur, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Pur. The context is key everywhere you read Scripture. Keep that in mind as you study God's Word. And the context of this command that comes in chapter 4 is that of idolatry. Don't take away from God's Word by saying that you can worship God in ways other than He has said. And don't add to it in the same manner. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 12. In verse 29... Deuteronomy 12:29 When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after you've been destroyed after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods saying how did these nations serve their gods that I may also do the same you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For even they burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Verse 32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. To compromise is to take away or to add to God's word. It was so in the Old Testament as they got ready to enter the promised land and God said, if you want to know the blessings that I have for you, don't take away or add to the Word by compromising in your walk with me or your worship of me. And so I believe, as with all of the book of Revelation, we cannot understand it properly unless we have that Old Testament context from which it comes. And so John is, has this, the Holy Spirit has put this on his heart and on his mind. And even as John is tempted to worship that which is good, but not best. John, don't take away from the holiness of God by worshiping that which is not God. Don't add to glory which God will not share by trying to give that glory to someone or something else. 
And so worship is flowing throughout the Word of God and it's flowing throughout this final section of God's Word. There in the garden, Satan took away from the Word when he said, did God really say you shall not eat from this tree? And he added to it, did he not? When he said, he knows you will be like him. And it's the same pattern throughout time. We take away from the Word, the glorious Word of the Gospel, when we even unwittingly agree that Jesus is not the only way to salvation. We've diminished that Word. We add to that Word when we in some way add these, word, these, these rules or regulations, these legalities, if you will, to what it means to come to God by grace alone, through faith alone, when we add some regulation that's necessary for salvation, we've added to the Word and diminished it at the same time, right? We take away from the Word when we accept the culture's, under, the culture's understanding of human sexuality. We add to the Word when we for one second tell a lost, hurting, broken world that you must do something other or additional to genuine repentance. Just repent. Turn from it. We want to add our legalities. We want to add our understanding of cultural mores. We add to it when we politicize the kingdom of God and we take away from it when we equate not just our nation, but any human nation with the kingdom of God. We've added to and taken away from the Word. We take away from it when we diminish the dignity, the imago Dei, of every human being, regardless of their color, regardless of their sexuality, regardless of their persuasion. We diminish the Word and take away from it when we diminish that blessed image of God in that human being. And we add to that. We add to the Word some legality, if you will, when we speak something to them instead of a, the Word of truth and grace. I could go on and on with this, but you get the picture. Don't add to the Word and don't take away from it. And I believe this Word is not directed to those outside the city. I believe it's directed to the people of God. I believe it's directed to those that were there in those churches, those seven churches. But I do believe it's addressed to those who are not genuine believers. I, that's just my... They feign that. They, they appear to be. They look this way. But, but this promise that the plagues are going to be added, this promise that the tree of life will be taken away in some way, that's not something that a genuine believer has to worry about. That, I, I just see that all through Scripture. But here's this picture of us holding truly to the Word of God. Which brings us to that point that we touched on last week. This trustworthy and true Word which calls for true repentance also calls for responsive obedience and repentance. And that, you remember what we read up there? Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy, the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. That's, what in the world is this? And again, that contrast and that context is so important for us because those on the inside that are marked by the, the, the character of God that wear His name, 
Those that are on the inside are marked by that character. Those on the outside, it says, are, are, are dogs. They're unclean. They're sorcerers. They're trying to manipulate God through magic other than following Him. They're sexually immoral like all those false religions did. They're murderers. They're taking the lives of God's people and of each other. They're idolaters. And they love and practice falsehood. They're following the father of lies. Outside and inside, there's this clear contrast. And so constantly throughout the book of Revelation and throughout God's Word, God's people are called to assess ourselves. We're called to look at these characteristics of the world and be sure that if I see that in myself, if the Holy Spirit reveals that in me, I'm to repent of that and turn from that. That is not the mark of God's child. And so we're reminded of that again here. It's the contrast with God's character as opposed to the character of the beast. Outside the city, it's one way of living. Actually, by this point, they're not really living at all in that sense. They're just under the eternal damnation of God. But this character is clear to see there. And there's this contrast between those who are righteous and still doing right and those who are holy and still being holy. And we're called to wash our robes. I touched on this last week. But this idea of repentance and obedience... It's God's way of speaking to us and saying the world worships its sexuality. Don't do that. Don't add to my word or take away from it by doing that. The world worships its wealth. Don't do that. What I have stored up for you in heaven is is far beyond that. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. I'll take care of all that stuff. Don't worship that. The world worships power. And political prestige. Don't do that, church. Don't do that. You're taken away from the Word and adding to it by thinking that in some way you're going to be lifted up or elevated in that regard. Don't worship angels, John. Don't worship the messenger. Worship the one who sent them. Don't worship some hero. Don't worship some movie star. Don't worship other people. Because then you're just going to look in the mirror and worship yourself sooner or later. Don't do that. So again, these characteristics are there for us to assess ourselves, even as we, through the Scriptures, judge the world around us. This trustworthy Word calls us to wash our robes, church, work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we assess ourselves, as we walk faithfully with Christ, as we overcome in the face of hardship and suffering and difficulty by His grace. Wash our robes and work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we face even the prospect of martyrdom and losing our lives, losing our reputations, losing our prestige because we worship Jesus and not the ways of the world. We wash our robes by holding fast to God's Word and not diminishing it, not adding to it. We hold fast to our word as we take this word to others. Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Have you heard that before? Have you heard that reference before? We should in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me 
Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And God goes on with these amazing promises throughout chapter 55. Anyone who is thirsty, come. The Spirit and the Bride, it says, say, come. Jesus stood up on the last day of the great feast, it tells us in John 7, and He stood up and cried out. Can you just hear this? All this clamor, all this stuff going on there in the temple. All of this worship, all of this going on during this great feast. And Jesus stands up, and I believe the way John relates it to us, stands up so that He's high above others, He's in a place where He can be seen and He's prominent. And He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Part of that whole worship was the pouring out of water. And Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes Me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus invited, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And now we are charged as His church, as His people, to issue that same invitation. If you're thirsty, come. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Now there's discussion among commentators. Is this word of invitation one that's a prayer to Jesus? Come, Lord. Well, that comes later on down in verse 20. But I think here it's an invitation. It's the last invitation. It's the last evangelistic call that we find in the Bible. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Jesus said it there in John chapter 7. And we are called to extend that same invitation. Come. Now, we understand, right? This, I mean, this seems like free will. It's what it looks like. Whoever is thirsty, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life come without price. Is, is, is that what we're seeing there? It seems like that open invitation. And again, as we read all of the Word and understand it together, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it is the Spirit that gives life. It is the Spirit that speaks into our hard, deaf soul and regenerates that heart and causes us to desire. Look at John 3. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was, concerned, was just confused about all of this as we see later on. But Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus just didn't understand, it says in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, Nicodemus just Nicodemus, Jesus said, that you must be born again. It is the Spirit who gives life. It is the Spirit who works in us to make us thirsty. So yes, the Spirit works in our hearts. And Jesus says later on in John 6, unless the Father who sent me draws him, no one comes to me. I'll raise him up in the last day. So without the Holy Spirit speaking into a dead heart, no one gets thirsty for Jesus. We're still thirsty for the world. But yet, He calls us to go and take the water. He calls us to go and extend the invitation. He calls us to go and offer this. Romans ten thirteen. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how then can they call on Him if they have not believed in Him? And how can they believe in the One whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring 
good news. John Piper has said it well. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That's why we pray for missions. That's why we participate in missions. That's why we train up and raise and send out missionaries. That's why we go and take the gospel into Roxburgh, into our community, into our homes and our schools and our offices and our workplaces. We do that because one day people from every tribe and tongue and nation will fulfill that beautiful picture we see in Revelation 7. The trustworthy and true Word of God extends that invitation and calls us to be a part of that. And in a sense, church, we wash our robes. We work out our salvation. We're walking with Jesus in faith, trusting that His grace has saved us and that grace continues to save us as we walk in obedience with Him. It's just this beautiful picture of what our salvation is. It all just seems to come full circle in my mind. And I think it does here on this page. It started in grace in Revelation chapter 1. This, this beautiful, blessed are those who read aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who fear and keep what is written because the time is near. And that promise of grace that comes there and then at the end, grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. I'm not real sure how I'm going to summarize this whole book next week, but kind of did it in some degree today, but, but we will do that next week. You know, I, we've joked about it. I remember joking about it when we first started this series now, a year ago, about not preaching the book of Revelation until now. Listen, I, I regret that we've only done it just now. I really do. There's blessing that's promised to us. There's promises given to us and a perspective for us that church, we need it so badly. So yeah, I wish we'd done it sooner. But at the same time, as we work our way through whole books of the Bible, whole passages, whole chapters, whole whole just work our way book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through through the Word of God. I absolutely trust God's timing. I do. It's just been so rich to be reminded once again of how God is reigning and ruling and is going to bring it to an end. It's so rich to be able to just rest in this beautiful picture that Jesus wins. And that if I'm in Christ, so do I. And all the suffering and all the persecution that I should welcome because that means I'm walking with Him and not with the world. So may God bend the knee of Westwood Church so that we will worship Him alone and serve Him only. And as we do, we're extending that invitation to a community and a world around us. If you are thirsty, come to Jesus. I'll pick you up and carry you if I need to, but come to Jesus. Let's pray. Worthy are you, O Lord. And worthy are you, Lord Jesus, as the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. We worship you and we give you thanks. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that before 
before the foundation of the world, you had names written in a book. Thank you that before the foundation of the world, you had determined that that your people would be called to you and stand before you holy, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, in the holiness of Christ. Standing before you, Lord, in the perfection of His obedience and not ours. Father, overwhelm us with the reality that we were sinners and still are struggling with sin. But Lord, we stood before You lost and condemned. And You loved us in that while we were still sinners, You sent Your Son to die for us. As we celebrate Your coming, Lord Jesus, as we celebrate Your birth, oh, stir in us a hunger for Your second coming. Stir in us a desire to see You break open the heavens. Lord, we thank You for this picture. We thank You for this promise. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today, maybe they're watching on the the stream, maybe they're listening later on, God, if they've never trusted in Jesus, Father, we pray that You would free them from the chains of idolatry and the lies of the enemy. Lord, You would open the eyes of their hearts that they could see the glory of God in the face of Jesus that they'd see the lostness of their soul, the emptiness of their lives being lived for a false God this world offers. And Lord, they would come to Jesus. Quench their thirst, Lord, but first make them thirsty. I pray that for someone in this room. Father, I pray for Your church, that we would hunger and thirst for Your righteousness, that we would pray, Lord Jesus, come. But until You do, may You find us faithful. We lift up all this to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.